You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Today's episode is brought to you by Pepsi. This football season will be different, and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day no matter how you watch this season. Pepsi is a refreshment you need to power through game day and become a member of the League of Football Watchers. These passionate fans are the real generational talent that Pepsi fuels. Because Pepsi isn't made for those who play the game, it's made for those who watch it. Pepsi, made for football watching. Happy Tuesday to you. It's time for Herd Mentality, the episode each week where you take control of the discussion. And considering the wide range of emotion and opinion of this football team, how everyone feels coming out of the win over the Patriots, there's a lot to get into. And actually, the first few questions kind of deal with some of the the Bills fans that are struggling to find positivity with this team and thinks that there may be a discrepancy between a 6-2 and two record and how good this team really is. So we're going to kind of start our conversation with that and then dig into some of the other outstanding items that were sent in. So let's get into John's item first. He says, are the Bills playing down to their opponents and is this coaching? Look at the first four games versus the last four. I feel like they play what is expected of them and no more. They do just enough to win in the games they are expected to win and fall short in the games they are expected to lose. I feel like the Bills' offense is doing great but lacks that killer instinct, doing just enough to win. I feel like they can do more and may be a little bit conservative. Here's what I want to say in response to that. What are our expectations? I never expect NFL teams to blow out other NFL teams. Moreover, I always expect division games to be close. And so I think people are feeling some sort of way about an eight-point win over the Jets and a three-point win over the Patriots. Let's take a look at what a normal margin of victory is in the NFL. Going back to 2006, 49.8% of football games that have been played since 2006 in the NFL resulted in a one-score win for the team that was victorious. Means that they won by a margin of victory of 1 to 8 points. 49.8%. Basically, half of the games that are played in the NFL are one-score wins. 22.6% of the games are settled by two scores, 9 to 16 points. And 27.6% of NFL football games have a margin of victory of more than two scores. The most common margin of victory in NFL games, three points. 14.5% of NFL football games are decided by three points. The second most common is seven points, where 9.2% of games are settled by a margin of victory of seven points. Again, 49.8% of NFL football games that have been played since 2006 are one-score victories. It's not normal to blow out teams. It's not normal to win by three scores. So for as much as people are craving the Bills to mop the floor with the Jets and Patriots, that's not normal in the NFL. I don't have expectations of NFL teams blowing out other NFL teams ever. And I always expect division games to be tight. That's exactly what happened the last two games. I have no reason to believe that this team lacks a killer instinct. I think that they try to win every single game by as many points as they can. There's no evidence that leads me to believe that other than I'm a Bills fan too and I want them to win by big margins and I want to look like we dominated every single team. I have that desire in my gut. But the reality is 50% of NFL football games are settled by a margin of victory 
of eight points or less. Frankie says, Joe, I can't decide if I'm happy with this game or if I should be happy with just beating the Patriots, even as underhanded as they are. Like, is this a legit 6-2 and two football team? Here's what I'll say. The Bills are 6-2, and two, and they haven't even played their best game of the season yet. There's still a whole lot to learn about the 2020 Buffalo Bills. We've seen them pass the ball really well. We've seen the run game pick up over the last couple of games. Defense has been mostly disappointing, but it's came away with some clutch plays at key times. And I do think that this team has some momentum. I mean, they've won six games in eight tries. Their two losses came in unusual circumstances. What if that Titans game is played at 1 o'clock on Sunday like it's supposed to? What if that Chiefs game is played on Thursday in Buffalo with the Chiefs on short rest and the Bills at home? Do those games look differently? Probably. So I'm just saying that there's some context here. The Bills are 6-2. and two. They're in wonderful position. We talk about this team growing and getting better. Last year, they won 10 games. They were a wild card team, and they lost in the first round of the playoffs. This year, they're on pace to win this division for the first time since 1995. They're going to host a playoff game. If they win the division and win a playoff game, is that not growth from where this team was last year? All that to say that there's still a lot to learn about the 2020 Buffalo Bills, and they have six wins and eight tries. Buzzed Bills says, after watching this game, I am celebrating the win with a feeling of nagging anxiety. I feel that in the games the Bills have won, it seems that we cannot shut the door upon the opponent and always let them back into the game. I feel that if we are to believe that the Bills are a true deep playoff contender, they shouldn't be allowing these teams to stay in the ballgame. This coupled with our points scored slash allowed ratio being what it is triggers my nagging Bills trauma. Am I wrong and lacking the perspective that other elite teams allow opponents back into the game? I would have loved to see the Bills shut the door on the Patriots prior to seeing the Seahawks next week. Please talk some sense into this pessimist. Listen, I think everyone is going to interpret this team differently. And if you're naturally a pessimistic person, I think you're going to buy into some of the doom and gloom that you can subscribe to based on what this team has told you. The thing I want to pick apart from your email is when you said, I feel that in the games the Bills have won, it seems that we cannot shut the door on the opponent and always let them back into the game. If you win the game, then you did shut the door on your opponent. You achieved the objective of having more points at the end of the game than they did. And I think being able to close games, being able to win close games is a good thing. So far, the Bills this year, 5-0 and in one-score games, which is going back to how I answered the first question, 50% of NFL football games are one-score games. The Bills are 5-0 and in those circumstances. Now let's talk about growth here for a little bit. Last year in one-score games, the Bills were 4-4. Four and four. In 2018 in one-score games, the Bills were 3-3. Three and three. So you're 7-7 seven and seven in one-score games in 2018 and 2019. You're 5-0 in 2020. I, for one, am really excited that the Bills know how to win close games. And so when we talk about this shutting the door, killer instinct being mindful of what we've now established and identified on this podcast as what a normal result for an NFL football game is and the fact that the Bills are 5-0 and in the most common margin of victory that happens in the NFL is a good thing. And I'm happy that the Bills are able to win tight ball games. Charles says, not going to lie, Joe, I wasn't excited that Tremaine Edmonds got hurt for his health, but I was excited that he got hurt just so I can see someone else play middle linebacker. I thought he played horrible as he has all year. What are your thoughts? No, you know, look, I'm not excited about the way Tremaine Edmonds is playing this year. I think there's a very simple explanation. He's injured. He's not right. He's not healthy. And he is going out there and doing the best he can with a bum shoulder that is impacting the way he's playing. Somewhere inside, of that 6'5", 250-pound frame that wears number 49 for the Buffalo Bills is the Pro Bowl linebacker that existed last year. 
He didn't lose his talent. He didn't get monstered like in Space Jam. He's hurt. And when you play a game that is reliant on your physical ability to execute in an NFL football game, not being 100% or close to it is going to have a detrimental impact on your performance. So I am I am simultaneously disappointed in how Tremaine Edmonds is playing this year and also understanding that there's an explanation and he's not healthy and um, the entire defense is not playing up to speed this year. The second question from Charles was, also I'm glad we got this win and it's a divisional game, but they literally had no one playing on their offense and they still managed to put up a lot of points on us. I don't think there is any good on the defensive side of the football except for Justin Zimmer. Just think if the Patriots had Edelman, Gilmore, their other wide receiver and kill Harry, their offensive tackle, defensive tackle, we would have gotten whooped. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, the Patriots did have their entire offensive line fully healthy. It's a great unit, and they run the football well. Here's how I would respond to your thought there, Charles. I would say, what if the Bills had John Brown, Dawson Knox, Cody Ford, Mitch Morse, Vernon Butler, Tremaine Edmonds, Matt Milano, Josh Norman, and Micah Hyde all fully healthy? I'll take my chances with the Bills dub and not getting whooped if both teams were healthy. And the Bills were shorthanded too. I just listed all of those players that either were out or tried to play the game hurt. So both teams were shorthanded. Colin says, I always find you to be the voice of reason, and I need your help. A couple hours ago, we just beat the New England Patriots. The monkey is off our back. It was a rock fight, but isn't that the way we expected it to be? It wasn't going to be easy. Good teams find ways to win football games, and we found a way to win that football game. I was under the impression we would be celebrating long into the night. We just beat the freaking Patriots. But when I log into Twitter and look at my feed, it's a cesspool of negativity. What is going on, Joe? We're on pace to be 12-4. and four. Why can't we enjoy it? Listen, I, I see where you're coming from. I see where people who have doubts about this football team are coming from as well. Everyone has different feelings about where this team is. And I think the Bills finally being a good team with expectations has increased that wide range of viewpoints that exist in evaluating this team. We all want the Bills to be a respected team like the Kansas City Chiefs. We want it badly. And if Kansas City won the game on Sunday exactly how the Bills did, I think their fan base would be, oh, great, another win, and who do we play next? But we're not there yet. We're still learning how to be fans of a good team. And I think that is playing into the wide-ranging opinions and viewpoints and emotions that are coming out of Bills' wins. Like five years ago, if we said the Bills were 6-2, and 4-0 in the division halfway through, you know, we'd be losing our minds. But this is a different team, right? The expectations are different. The Bills won 10 games last year. There's this expectation for there to be continuous growth and, and getting better and solidifying their status as one of the elite teams in the NFL. And they haven't, they haven't eliminated the doubt, right? Like the doubt's still there. So I understand how everybody wants to feel. So I think people are simultaneously really happy about six and two in the direction of the team, but also have concerns about is this a team that's really going to go deep into the playoffs? Or are they going to win the division because the Patriots stink and the Jets stink and the Dolphins are still kind of finding things out? And so they're going to win the division just like they went to the playoffs in 2017, and then they're going to lose in the first round to the Baltimore Ravens. I think people are like thinking that's a possibility and are cautious to buy in, and you want so badly to be viewed as an elite team, and the Bills have left room for doubt, and some people are taking that and running with it. Peter says, what do you think the main improvement was with the run game? Is it John Feliciano being back, the running backs just playing better, or was it the play calls? You know, I'll say the rushing attack being better started last week against the Jets where it found itself a little bit. Zach Moss showed some life. Uh, He was obviously injured earlier in the season with uh, the turf toe injury, and he had a tough time kind of finding his way early on in the season. He's healthy, and it looks like you know he's kind of – feeling more comfortable in his role. 
Obviously, John Feliciano being back was huge for the run game. The way that he sustains blocks and the way that he widens run lanes is, is a big factor. I think Ike Bakker played a much, much, much better football game against uh, the Patriots than he did the Jets. And, you know, I think Brian Dable had better design with his run plays. And I think Josh Allen made some really, really good checks at the line of scrimmage to read the leverage of his blocks and and where the the front seven was aligned and and got the Bills into some really good run calls. So I think all those things coming together uh, contributed to why we saw the Bills have a, a really outstanding, dominant day rushing the football against the New England Patriots. Ryan says, I have a question about Mitch Morse and concussions and his availability. With him out, is our best line combination Feliciano at center and Bakker at left guard? I know Bates isn't a world beater, but in your opinion, would the line be better off with him at center and Feliciano manning his usual guard position? Obviously, that would mean relegating Bakker to the bench. I think the Bills' best offensive line combination is obviously Dawkins and Williams at tackle, but if Mitch Morse is going to be out, I do think I want Feliciano at center. Um, I think his experience in that role, uh, making line calls, uh, snapping the football, uh, matters a lot in who's playing that position. Um, I think, you know, look, (laughs) it is what it is with Cody Ford being out and Quentin Spain being on the Cincinnati Bengals. I think the Bills' best right guard right now is Brian Winters. And based on the way Ike Bakker improved from the Jets game to the Patriots game, I think right now I'm willing to buy in, into him at left guard. But obviously we'd love to see what this this unit looks like with uh, Dawkins and then Ford, Morse, and then Feliciano, and then, of course, Daryl Williams. Uh, I'd love to see it. I think it would be a really good unit, but that's just, that's just not where we're at right now given injuries to Ford and Morse. John says, my question is about Mitch Morse. He suffered his fifth documented concussion yesterday. That's scary, and it makes me wonder if he will think about retirement. I suffered a TBI myself and always think overly cautious. If he were to walk away, how would it affect the salary cap? So I have the answer for you on the salary cap implications. But first, I want to revisit a quote from Mitch Morse uh, that he stated after he was cleared from the concussion that he suffered in training camp last year that kept him sidelined for a number of weeks. And so when he was healthy, this is what he said about uh, his mindset, about the concussion history that he has and his forecast moving forward. He said, quote, when you look at the grand number of them, you get over the fact that if you take care of yourself and I do everything the right way, I know for a fact that I'll be fine in the future. If it happens again, I'll be fine. And if it happens again after that, I'll be fine. You always wonder, but every single specialist I talked to said the outside perception of these things is kind of far off. I feel very confident that I'm going to be fine in the future. We've done all the tests you can do, and everyone was tip top, and all the specialists said I'll be just fine. Obviously, new information can change the way he feels about the situation, but I think if you were nervous about Mitch Morse retiring, based on this fifth documented concussion, the fact that he literally said one year ago, if it happens again, I'll be fine. And if it happens again after that, I'll be fine. I think there's something to take away from his mentality and reading into his um, approach to this. Now, if he were to retire, and um, here's what it would mean for the Bills' salary cap, and I I got this information from Greg Thompson. He's the host of the Cover One Buffalo podcast and – uh, Greg does a great job with the podcast, but he also has a really good understanding of um, NFL economics with salary cap and, and all the things that go into it. So I ask Greg questions all the time about the salary cap and and you know how things imp- impact it. And this is what he had to say when I uh, texted him and asked him uh, for um, information on if Mitch Morse were to retire, what it would mean for the Bills' salary cap. Greg said, retire is the exact same as release in CBA terms. So if he retires now or any time before the 2021 season, he's $5.5 million in dead cap and $4.875 million in savings. Not catastrophic, but bad, and obviously not nearly enough to replace him. It would technically be worse if he officially retired today, but it would benefit the team greatly to wait until March 1st to announce that 
if it came to that worst case scenario, which I would assume he would oblige. So there you go. There's your information on that. Um, would not be good for the bill's salary cap. You'd accumulate some dead cap and really not create any savings. Corbs says, was this a coming out party for Zach Moss or was it all because of situational football and the weather? I think he showed amazing vision and your favorite quote, contact balance. We need to feature Moss and Singletary more as the situations lend themselves to it. Love the pot and go Bills. You know, I think it was in a lot of ways a coming out party for Zach Moss. I mean, we've seen him gain confidence now for a couple of weeks and uh, he's he's finding himself and I think it's a really good thing. Uh, the Patriots are good run defense, and uh, I really do think that the the Bills came in with a good plan, and Zach Zach Moss executed, and you know it's it's really encouraging because I shared some concerns that I had about the Bills' rushing offense, and you know could they win games with elements, whether that's wind or, or rain or snow, and you know talking about playing home playoff games and winning games late in the season, you know that really comes down to being able to run the ball when you need to be able to run the ball. And um, I think that this, the last two games have been really good for uh, my belief that the Bills can do that. So um, we'll call it a coming out party um, and uh, really kind of buy into the last two weeks of, of success running the football. And hopefully that continues because as much as I, I believe in a pass-first offense and I think you pass to win in the NFL, you still got to be able to run it. And uh, the Bills have proven they can over the last two games. Need to tell you guys about Built Go. It's made by the fine folks who produce Built Bar, the best tasting protein bar in the world. And now they have a workout gel and it is designed to help you break through your wall, whether it's a mental or physical wall, break through it with Built Go every day. Comes in easy to take one and a half ounce packages that you can put in your briefcase. You can put it in your golf bag or just stick it in your pocket to have it ready whenever you need it. Built Go is the best workout gel on the market. It's five-hour energy without the same crash feeling. Plus, it's natural, so it's better for your body. It's like drinking a monster drink with a third of the caffeine and better results. Comes in three delicious flavors, peanut butter, honey, chocolate, coconut, and chocolate mint. Visit BuiltGo.com and use promo code LOCKED, and you'll get 30% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKED for 30% off at BuiltGo.com. Let's go. Next one today comes from Alan, who put some work into his email here. And so stick with me uh, because I have some interesting thoughts on, on the information Alan presents. He says, you touched on my question a bit in the Monday recap pod, but it concerns the Bills defense with McDermott and Frazier. I've been an NFL fan for over 25 years, and I've never seen the type of performances that McDermott's defense have, in particular against the run, from other teams. And so Allen then goes on to list games in 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020 of where the Bills gave up a ton of rushing yards. And so let me tell you the games that he references and how many rushing yards the Bills gave up in those games. So going back to 2017, the Bills gave up 298 rushing yards to the Saints in a loss, 146 rushing yards to the Chargers in a loss, 191 yards to the Patriots in a loss, and then 193 rushing yards to the Patriots in another loss. In 2018, uh, Allen reminds us of a Colts loss where the Bills gave up 220 rushing yards, a win over Jacksonville where the Bills allowed 226 rushing yards, and a loss to the Patriots where the Bills gave up 273 rushing yards. In 2019, uh, Allen reminds us of the loss to Philadelphia where the Bills gave up 218 rushing yards, Lost to the Browns, where the Bills gave up 147. The Patriots, where they gave up 143. And a loss to the Texans, where the Bills gave up 141. And then so far this year, Allen reminds us of three games. A win over the Rams, where they gave up 167. The loss to the Chiefs, where they gave up 245. And a win against the Patriots, where the Bills gave up 188 rushing yards. Allen continues to say, in thinking back to watching those games, there seemed to be no adjustments whatsoever. The same four-man approach, keeping linebackers and DBs back off the ball, and then watching the offense run right through the defense over and over and over. It is incredibly frustrating to watch in real time, but then even more infuriating to hear McDermott call it a blue-collar effort in a win. Are you kidding me? As you touched on Monday, it is a mentality and the Bills under McDermott do not seem to have it when it matters and too often seem to get absolutely trucked by physical teams who have an attitude. My question is, why does it seem to happen often with this defense and this coaching staff? Is it scheme related? 
coaching or is it personnel related? I know we are missing Star Latulale, but it is much more than just one guy. There aren't a lot of dogs on this defense at all, and that is a disappointment. Bonus question, if you can have one stud Bills defensive tackle in their prime to put on this defense, who are you taking? So let me start there. The, the defensive tackle that I'm taking in their prime uh, to put into this defense is Pat Williams. That dude was a dude, man. Loved him. So give me Pat Williams at one tech in the Bills defense in his prime. So a lot of interesting stuff here that Allen brings up, and obviously he echoed some of the points that I made there about the Bills needing to have a better mindset and a more aggressive mentality. They need to hunt. They need to be dogs. They need to be get after it. You know, all those types of things. And I, I, I'm not going to back off of what I said on Monday. Uh, but one thing that Allen does get into here is he lists these games, four in 2017, two in 20, or three in 2018, four in 2019, and three already in 2020, where the Bills got gashed against the run. And I didn't do a ton of research here, but I went to one team in particular the New England Patriots, to see, all right, well, do teams get gashed in the run often? Is this a normal thing that, you know, we we feel a certain way about because it's the Bills, but, you know, it really kind of happens more often than we realize across the league? And so I looked at the same sample size, 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020, and I looked at the New England Patriots, and I found the following information in 2017 – the Patriots gave up 185 to the Chiefs, 157 to the Chargers, 183 to the Bills, and 164 to the Eagles. In 2018, they gave up 167 to Houston, 159 to Detroit, 150 to the Titans, 189 to the Dolphins, 158 to the Steelers. In 2019, they gave up 210 to the Ravens, 164 to the Bengals, and 201 to the Titans. So far this year, they gave up 154 to Seattle, 197 to the 49ers, and 190 to the Bills. I mean... It looks like from reviewing the data that Allen sent in is that you gave me all of the games where the Bills gave up like 140 or more rushing yards. And I went through the Patriots over the same sample size and found more games from them with massive amounts of rushing yards seeded as well. So I, I don't know. Like, I didn't go through every team. I don't know how often it happens, but I just went to one team and it's the New England Patriots who are renowned for great defense and limiting scoring and they get gashed in the run anywhere from three to six times a year too. So, I don't know. I I think it may be more of a, a frequent thing than we understand and we just feel a certain way about it because it's the Bills and we get tired of seeing teams gash the bills and it's demoralizing when you can't stop the run it's it sucks it sucks to watch that and it's your favorite team on defense but I do think it's a little bit more of a frequent thing than we realize and again that's only looking at the Patriots who are renowned for great defense Jeff says I have a question about the bills route concepts to beat the deep zone inverted cover two, etc if teams are focusing on dropping a safety in the middle of the field to stop the crossing routes that worked earlier in the season, doesn't that open the deep corner routes and post routes? It seems like our entire passing game consists of 5-10 to yard outs and curls. I get that defenses are trying to take away chunk plays, but great offenses find ways to beat that while still attacking deep. Seems like our concepts are stale. Take what the defense gives you is fine, but we need bigger plays. Yeah, and I think, Jeff, I think it's honestly just the next part of the evolution of this offense. We saw this team not be able to beat man coverage uh, last year, and we saw that change this year, and now teams are changing how they're playing against the Bills, and the Bills are adapting to that next style of play. And I think the important thing when you do play those types of teams that want to play zone heavy against you is that you do need to take your profits. And as you take your profits, opportunities down the field soften things up, and you have more opportunities, and you can run different route combinations that will free up guys down the field, but that really does come from taking those profits um, to set up the, the deeper throws. And, you know, it's it puts a little bit more on the timing of the offense. It puts more on Josh to throw with anticipation and um, be on the same page with his, with his wide receivers. So I don't think it's a design issue when it comes to the route combinations. I think it's just the Bills adapting to this new way that the league is playing Josh Allen and the Bills offense. And now it's up to them to evolve and take that next step. It's it's uh, 
it's that chess game. And it, you're seeing it not just from like the context of one game. You're seeing this in, in terms of chunks of, of, of the season. And so we'll see how as the Bills go into the third quarter of the season, how they respond to this style of play that they're getting from defenses. So we'll, we'll evaluate it and see how things come together. Justin says, please tell me that Levi Wallace, Taron Johnson, and A.J. Klein aren't Buffalo Bills in 2021. Levi Wallace gives too much cushion on any receiver, and I don't recall Dane Jackson getting one snap at outside corner. Anybody can do what Wallace does and play way off the receiver and have zero impact on the game. With the development of Josh Allen, does it become a wash with the regression of this defense? We almost lost the game if it wasn't for a punch out by an elevated practice squad player. With how our past D has played this year, I'm already praying with Russell Wilson coming to town and Dable better have an up-tempo game plan and not the garbage one he had against the Chiefs. Trust your quarterback and do not have a conservative game plan. Allen plays his best when they play fast. I do think some tempo would be good. I think that's a really good idea um, to take advantage of some of that rhythm and, and getting Josh going a little bit, but... I would disagree with you on the the game plan against the Chiefs being conservative. I think the Bills just didn't hit the throws that were there. I mean, look at early in the game. I mean, Josh was chucking it. They just weren't connecting. And, you know, obviously there was wind and rain in that game, and the Bills didn't handle it very well. But I don't think it was a conservative game plan. Defensively, it may have been, but not on offense. Um, So, yeah, it's a big test for the Bills against the Seahawks. We're going to talk about it a ton starting tomorrow on this podcast. And, um, you know, that – I, I don't know if I can promise you that Wallace, Johnson, and Klein won't be on the team next year, um, but those guys, not Klein, but Wallace and Taron Johnson have been part of good Bills defenses over the last two years. The Bills had a top three defense in 2018 and 2019, and Johnson and Wallace were big pieces of it. So it's not like they can't be important, productive pieces on good defenses. They've proved that, uh, just not playing well this year. And so hopefully those answers uh, come soon. B Mormon 2020 said, did you notice Allen using some new audible names against the Patriots? Thought I heard him screaming reload on one play that turned into a run. If I'm remembering correctly, I'm not a football expert. So I'm wondering what you thought of Allen's pre-snap adjustments on Sunday. You know, I think that's an underrated part of Josh Allen's game. How good of a job he does at the line of scrimmage with checks, with protection calls, um, with audibles, with understanding the game clock, um, man, he's just really in tune with all of that stuff. He's really smart at the line of scrimmage. There's no question about it. I think he made some really good checks um, when it comes to getting the Bills into good run plays. And, um, yeah, all that verbiage means stuff. You know, reload could mean um, that they want the play to go right instead of left because there's an R in reload. Uh, reload could mean um, that uh, they he checked he checked out of the original play. Uh, based on something he saw in the defense, and then the defense shifted, and he said reload, so it's back to the original plan. You know, there's there's a lot that it can mean, but Josh Allen at the line of scrimmage pre-snap is is terrific, and I don't think we talk enough about it. Rich has one about AJ Klein, so this is very similar to something sent in by Andrew, and so Rich says you nailed one topic yesterday, and that is AJ Klein. I can't remember a single good play he has had. Uh, he must have had at least one, right? I see the Bills sign Darren Lee. Could the Bills release A.J. Klein and activate Darren Lee? What impact would this have on the Bills' salary cap? Can Lee possibly be worse than Klein? Can you think of both positives and negatives with such a move? Related to this, at one point there was a discussion, and Coach McDermott was even asked about the possibility of bringing Lorenzo Alexander out of retirement. Is there any chance of this? Does it make any sense? Did I mention that I can't stand A.J. Klein? All right, so let's dig into the details here. Let's start with AJ Klein's contract. So Klein signed a three-year, eighteen million dollar contract with the Bills uh, that includes eleven point three million dollars in guaranteed money. He signed this year. His cap hit is five point nine million dollars. His dead cap is six point seven million dollars. There is no benefit whatsoever to releasing AJ Klein um, in terms of a salary cap perspective. In 2021, he has a cap hit of 6.4 million and a dead cap hit of 4 million. So you could you could cut AJ Klein after the season and save 2.4 million dollars, uh, but you would accumulate 4 million in dead cap space. So there is a little bit of savings to be had there, uh, but not a ton. 
Your best opportunity to get out of the deal is after 2021, where you can cut A.J. Klein for a savings of $5.2 million against the cap and a dead cap accumulation of just $400,000. So being completely logical here when it comes to the structure of the bill of the bills deal with AJ Klein, I think you'll ex- you should expect him to be on the team through 2021. Now, as far as Darren Lee, I mean, we all know this guy, he was a first round pick of the jets. He's extremely fast and that's about it. He struggled with the jets. He went to Kansas city last year, really couldn't get on the field. Didn't make an impact. Um, he does bring an athletic upside with him, but you know, you talk about missed tackles, uh, Darren Lee has missed 14% of his tackles in each of the last two seasons. So he's not a sure tackler. And this is what I'll say about A.J. Klein. He's not a good football player. He's It's not a good contract. I'm not a fan of A.J. Klein. His value is that he knows where to line up and he knows where to be. Now, we want more from linebackers than just knowing where to line up and knowing where to be. <laughs> but I will say this. That might be more than I can say for Darren Lee, who – is new to the system, and we don't – I mean, he doesn't know. He's been on the team for like a day. He doesn't know where to line up. He doesn't know where to be. So A.J. Klein is just a really bad finisher. He's near the football. He just doesn't have the athleticism. He's not a good tackler. He's not good in coverage. But he knows where to line up and where to be. He just doesn't know how to make any plays. Darren Lee doesn't make any plays – and doesn't know the system. I, I'm not sure that's a net positive. He's cheaper, but you're not saving anything by getting rid of AJ Klein. So I don't, I don't know. Like, obviously, I'm interested in somebody besides AJ Klein playing meaningful snaps for the Bills. But you know, <laughs> I'm not sitting here confident that it's Darren Lee. I hope it is. I really do. But I mean, what are what what can your expectations for him really be? He's not been on a team all year. He's getting signed in week nine to a practice squad. Like, be realistic of, about what to expect from Darren Lee. He's not going to be the savior to the defense. I think that would be very, 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 very unlikely. So for as much as we're starving to see a different player than A.J. Klein, that linebacker, playing you know nearly all the snaps for the Bills' defense, you know it's not just as quick as just putting somebody different in there. There's variables that exist with that. So uh, I'm not trying to be an A.J. Klein apologist or anything like that. I think he's terrible. But, you know, I, I, he's, I don't get the warm fuzzies about Darren Lee, to be quite candid with you. I, obviously, I hope that just Edmonds and Milano can get healthy and play the way we know they can play. And, you know, maybe Tyrell Dotson can help. Maybe Delshawn Phillips can help. But both of those guys are hurt too. So um, I'm down on A.J. Klein, but – you know, all I can tell you about Darren Lee is that he can run and he's been a bad football player for the Jets and the Chiefs. Greg says, is it just me or is A.J. Klein a missed tackle machine? This week in particular was bad. I know he's scheme familiar, but to me that's not enough. So let's talk about the Bills and their tackling issues. They missed 12 tackles on Sunday against the Patriots. Pretty on brand. They've missed 62 so far this season. Who has the most missed tackles on the team? It's A.J. Klein with seven. Tremaine Edmonds has six. Josh Norman has five. The following players have four. Terrell Dotson, Taron Johnson, Ed Oliver, Matt Milano, and Jerry Hughes. They all have four. The following players all have three. Cameron Lewis, Tredavious White, Justin Zimmer, Dean Marlowe, Jordan Poyer, and Micah Hyde. Now let's give a shout-out to the players that have played at least 100 snaps and don't have any missed tackles. You ready for that list of players? At least 100 snaps and no missed tackles. Levi Wallace, 261 snaps played, no missed tackles. Uh, Any others? Yeah, Vernon Butler, he's played 182 snaps and has zero missed tackles. Trent Murphy, uh, zero missed tackles and 236 snaps. AJ Epines is close. He has 91 snaps and zero missed tackles. So obviously we know the Bills have a missed tackle problem. I've been talking about it for months here on this podcast, and um, it continues to be an issue after missing 12 against the Patriots on Sunday. Next one comes from Paul, who says, First, do you think at any point you're going to go back and watch some of the play of Star Latulale and see if his impact on this defense is really as great as it appears? It may have been considering the drop-off of the defense this year. He's taken a lot of flack by the fan base the last couple of years, and I'm wondering if it really wasn't warranted. 
Um, I've defended Starla Tulele for a while on this podcast, uh, dating back to you know when he was on the team. So um, I don't need to go back and watch him. I've I've watched all of those games and rewatched all of those games, and I know how important he is to the defense. Now you could still make the case that for ten million dollars a season, his role as a run stopping one tech that plays forty percent of the snaps that output is not commensurate with the salary that he gets. So I can I can understand those criticisms, but I think acknowledging his value to the defense, but also kind of detaching the the price tag that comes with it, you know, can be a challenge. And I, I get the criticisms towards Starla Tulele because what he does is not something that's typically paid ten million dollars a season across five years in the NFL. The second question from Paul is, how bad was Vashon Joseph that he was cut and they felt Klein, especially at his price tag, was that much better? I can't imagine Joseph playing much worse than Klein and he would have been at a much more manageable price tag. I was never a big Vashon Joseph fan. Anyone who's listened to the podcast uh, since I, I started doing this in January of 2019 will know that I haven't had glowing things to say about Vashon Joseph and the player that I scouted at Florida, I think he was very poor when it comes to mental processing. I always said that if you can ask him to do a single one thing and not have to think, just shoot a gap or play man coverage against this guy, that he can hold his own. But when there's thinking involved, man, he really, really, really struggled. And I think the fact that Vashon Joseph has been cut and not picked up by anyone, I mean, the Bills let Vashon Joseph go and he is not signed with any one sense says a lot about what the league thinks of Vashon Joseph. So, um, you know, I think that it would just be a different player with a different number on his jersey, but the same level of frustration, perhaps even more, uh, based on what I think Vashon Joseph could be in the NFL. Jared says, my theme all week has been Tyler Bass slander is prohibited in this house. I'm frustrated by how quickly fans are ready to move on from him. Comparing Bass's numbers to the NFL average, his field goal percentage is below average, I concede. And if you look at projected season totals, Tyler Bass will score six points less than an average NFL kicker on the remainder of the season. However, if Bass had made two of his misses, say the miss week one against the Jets and one of the Bohorquez holds, his numbers are pretty much exactly NFL average and there is no opportunity cost whatsoever. Bass has ridiculous game-changer upside. Do you think that a potential loss of six points on the rest of the season is too much to see see if Bass is the franchise kicker? Why are our expectations for him so high? First thing I want to say in response to this from Jared is I hope Jared and everyone listened to my Friday discussion last week. To open up that podcast, I had former Buffalo Bills kicker Jake Arians on the podcast to talk about rookie kickers, development, what our expectations can be, what we can look at when observing Tyler Bass kick field goals that would tell us if he's getting better or not. And we had a great discussion, about 20 minutes or so. So I encourage everyone that is interested in Tyler Bass and how to how to understand his role and what he's going through and, and everything that goes into a rookie kicker and, and kicker development uh, we talked about with a former NFL kicker. So so listen to that discussion. It was very, uh, very enlightening. But, you know, I think that's always been the discussion with Tyler Bass, at least the ones I've had on this podcast, is it's been about, you know, him performing on the field to a level that's going to gain confidence because it's a roller coaster with rookies at every position, but especially kicker where the results are binary. You make the field goal or you don't. And it's so easy to judge how they're performing because it's makes and misses. And so kickers have to do a lot to earn the trust of a fan base, you know? So it's always it was always going to be a bit of a bumpy ride, but there's so much precedent for kickers getting better. And I don't think the Bills should be close to moving on from Tyler Bass. And what that really comes down to is look across the league. I mean, teams are recycling kickers like crazy. There's not better kickers out there. See what you have here, ride it out and hope that you have your long-term answer at kicker. Hope you have your next Steve Christie. Next one comes from Justin, who says, On Victory Monday, you made a point about A.J. Epinesa possibly being inactive due to mental mistakes. Could you elaborate on this? I've noticed people correcting his lining up 
like you said, playing defensive end, is there a lot of mental challenge in lining up or what could be confusing him? So there's play calls on defense just like there is on offense, and within those play calls, it tells you where you're supposed to be, and that is dictated by how the offense lines up. And so based on understanding the relationship between the defensive play call and how the offense is set, he needs to know if he's supposed to line up right over top of the tackle on the inside shoulder, on the outside shoulder. Same thing with the tight end. He has to know where to be. He has to be in the right alignment so that everyone can be in their proper gap. And as you saw in the game against the Jets, there were multiple times where Dean Marlowe or somebody else had to tap him and to- tell him to move over you know, a half a step in either direction or something like that. So, you know, knowing where he's supposed to line up first and foremost, I mean, that's like 101. Like you have to be able to get into the right spot before you can even execute. And I think with A.J. Epinesa and and him learning the game and, um, you know, thinking a lot probably about his responsibilities and what might happen on a play, he's just not piecing it all together and, and getting into the right lineup that he's supposed to. Now, when it comes to the men- the mental part of playing defensive end, I think it's pretty simple because there's only so many things that a blocker can do to you, and there's a response to every single one of those things. Now, one thing that I noticed about watching A.J. Epinesa at Iowa is that I don't think he was very um, astute and quick and sharp when it comes to identifying blocks, how they're trying to combat him, and what he's supposed to do to respond to that within the relationship of his run fit or his pass rush lane or whatever he's supposed to do. So I think that the mental side of the game is a work in progress for A.J. Epinesa. And what's encouraging about that is mental stuff, you can get smarter and you can become more comfortable and you can figure that out. I don't think from a physical perspective I have any concerns about it about A.J. Epinesa. I think he's shown his length and his heavy hands and his ability to disengage and you know enough athleticism. I think all of that stuff, the unteachable stuff – is is fine. It's it's just the mental piece of the game, where to line up and what to do once the ball snap. Adam says, prior to the draft, I was all in on taking Jeremy Chin, but didn't think he'd fall to the Bills pick. I was thrilled when he was still available, but the Bills took Epinesa. Although I was disappointed, I eventually warmed up to the pick. I definitely think it's too early to call Epinesa a bust, but do you think the Bills made the wrong choice. There's been talk of Chin being Defensive Rookie of the Year and seeing how the Panthers have used him, it looks like he could have helped our defense this year a lot more than an edge rusher. Could we have used Chin to solve some of our defensive woes this year at nickel and outside cornerback? Yeah, you guys knew I was in on Jeremy Chin. I talked him up a ton uh, in our podcast leading up to the draft. Big fan of his skill set and what he can mean to the Bills' defense as a positionless player, and especially after watching this year, seeing how often the Bills want to be in sub and having a positionless-type player that can help take away matchups and you know give the Bills some more speed and you know shoot gaps and play in man coverage, all that stuff. I was really excited about the prospects of a player like him in this defense. You know, I was also really high on Christian Fulton as uh, an option for the Bills to get better at cornerback two, opposite of Trey White. So, you know, I like A.J. Epinesa plenty, fine. Um, But, yeah, it's hard right now to look at this and think, well, the Bills could have certainly found a player that, at least in their rookie season, could have made more of an impact than than A.J. Epinesa. There's no question about it. And I have receipts (laughs) that that said, you know, that, that indicate that I agreed with that, you know, back in May when we were recapping the draft. So, you know, we, we might look at this in a few years and be really happy about A.J. Epinesa and the role he plays. Uh, but right now, you know, it's it doesn't look like it doesn't look like in terms of immediate impact. You know, he was the best choice, especially when it comes down to the Bills needs. Jeffrey says defensive woes continue to plague us, even though we saw minimal improvement the last two weeks. I understand injuries are part of this and have to be taken into consideration. But McDermott historically has done a great job with the next man up mentality. And frankly, the depth of this team was borderline outstanding at the beginning of the season. My question is, did the loss of Jordan Phillips and Shaq Lawson have that much of an impact on this defensive line? 
where we would have taken such a significant step backwards. Our pass rush is abysmal at best, forgive me, but other than those two, I can't think of any major losses we took from our roster considering last year. Why do you believe we are having such a struggle on defense compared to a top five unit just one year ago? Well, it's it's Phillips, it's Lawson, it's Starla Tule, it's Lorenzo Alexander, it's Kevin Johnson. Those are the real differences in, in addition to guys just not being healthy. You know, one thing I'll say about Phillips and Lawson, I think they were players that you could replace on the field. Like I didn't I wasn't worried about the football players that they were in finding, you know, comparable or or better players. And I thought the Bills did a good job of taking what they lost in in Lawson and Phillips and turning that into Mario Addison and Quentin Jefferson and AJ Epinesa and Vernon Butler. I thought that mix that that much more depth was a good thing. But one thing I will say about Phillips and Lawson that they do that the Bills defense doesn't is they play with that edge. They play with that energy. They play with that mentality, that mindset that's missing from the team. They bring so much to the table in terms of the intangibles and, uh, you know, being guys that just hunt the football. And so, you know, that's what I think you miss from those players. And, um, you know, from a talent perspective, I think the Bills are more talented, but that piece is missing, and it's hard not to look at, you know, the differences and say these guys aren't here and this is a piece that they bring and it doesn't exist with this unit and not feel like it's something that's missed. So, you know, I I, I think that's the one piece of it. You know, it's not a skill thing. It's not a talent thing. Those guys brought a mentality to the table that, is, is kind of missing right now from this unit. Dan says, heading into this week's game, it's hard not to feel the same way I did against Kansas City. It's going to take a near-perfect game to beat this Seahawks team. They are loaded. Besides our offense sustaining drives and keeping them off the field, what would you do to contain DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett with our current personnel, and how big of a loss would not having Micah Hyde be this week? Yeah, Micah Hyde's key this week. You you need to have deep safeties that can play over top and and keep leveraged and take away some of those deep throwing windows, and that's exactly what Micah Hyde has done for this team since he walked into the facility back in 2017. So Micah Hyde is monumentally important for this game. You know, I think when you consider just really high level, we'll get into the weeds with the Seahawks tomorrow, but Seattle has a very poor defense, and so – you know, obviously they present a lot of challenges offensively with Russ Wilson and Lockett and DK Metcalf, but you know, their defense is not good. And so this is a game where you feel like you should be able to score some points. Now, you kind of have to go back to some of the stuff that you've done in the past that made the Bills such a good pass defense that didn't give up big plays and replicate some of those ingredients and make it difficult on Russell Wilson in terms of where his eyes are going and, and uh, bracketing those routes down the field and and force Seattle to beat you in other ways. You have to say, we're not going to let Lockett and Metcalf get loose on the secondary, and if you beat us and have production, it's going to be because those secondary options come through. And um, you know, make them earn everything. Make them put together 10, 15 play drives to score on you. Don't give up any cheap yards and don't give up the big play and, um, you know, score. You got to score. You're going to have to score some points on Sunday. We'll talk about it a lot more over the next couple days here on this podcast. Tony says, you are Brandon Bean and you could address only one of the following at trade deadline. Uh, one technique, slot corner, defensive end, pass rush help. Which one do you try to address and what and what are your targets? Uh, I would have given up a six-round pick for Desmond King at slot corner in a heartbeat, but uh, here we are. I'd go after the one tech. I'd see what it would take to get Dalvin Tomlinson from the New York Giants and uh, see what you can what you can work out. I wouldn't give up a whole lot. I wouldn't give up anything higher than a fifth or a six-round pick, um, but um, that would be the spot I would look to upgrade is one tech defensive tackle. Dawson says, let's say the Bills pick in 2021 around pick 22 through 26. After seeing the Bills for the last seven, eight weeks, what position are you targeting for them? Do you have any particular players you think would be a good scheme fit and could potentially be day one starters? You know, I think there's so much to consider when we think about the needs next year, 
because the Bills have some free agents to deal with. You know, Levi Wallace and Josh Norman at cornerback, Matt Milano at linebacker. You've got Daryl Williams at right tackle, who's a free agent. John Feliciano is a free agent. So, you know, it's hard not to write down cornerback, linebacker, offensive tackle, and interior offensive line right off the bat because, you know, I don't think all of those players come back next year, and so you need replacements. Um, I also think the defensive line, right? Don't we want a difference maker on the defensive line? So I wouldn't eliminate that. And then I'm okay with the next factor on offense. If you think one of these tight ends um, could elevate this offense or you think a speedy uh, running back like a Travis Etienne can elevate this offense, you know I'm not going to discriminate against those ideas at this point. So we have a lot to learn about this team and who's back and who's not before we can really get into the weeds with the draft stuff, but those are the positions that I'm, I'm thinking about at this point. Ben says, what do you think about Croft versus Knox in the blocking department? It feels like Croft misses a lot of reach blocks that Knox handled regularly last season. Say what you want about Knox's hands. He seems like a much better blocker. I 100% agree with you. I think that was an underrated component of what Dawson Knox brought to the table last year and this year when he's healthy is that component as a blocker. He's a very good sift blocker. You can use him as a lead blocker into gaps. He can pull and win outside in space. I thought he did a good job in line as a blocker. So, yeah, you you have some variance with what he does as a pass catcher, uh, but he's been consistent as a, as a blocker, and I think that's something that the offense is missing and hopefully comes back very soon. Nate says, great work on the podcast, and I love your analysis. I've been a Bills fan for my entire life, indoctrinated by my grandparents in Buffalo, but have grown up in New England through a tough period of time. This winning is new, and this coaching slash general manager competency is also very new. Thinking about the past period, it felt like when games against the Patriots were hyped up, we often lost. You have mentioned your frustrations in regards to the coaching of Rex Ryan during his time in Buffalo, but I always wanted to know a few more specifics about your thoughts on that period not all that long ago. Were you not a fan from the start when he was hired, or did you, like me, drastically lose confidence as it all imploded, especially around his handling and management of the Patriots games? Love to know what you thought went so wrong. So yeah, I've hinted a lot on this podcast that I did not like like Rex Ryan, and I'll be honest with you, I'm glad my tenure on this podcast started when it did because I think I would have had had a hard time talking about Rex Ryan and a Rex Ryan coach football team every week uh, because I I just had so much disappointment in that man. Um, I didn't like Rex Ryan with the New York Jets. I thought he was a loudmouth idiot. I thought he was embarrassing. I I remember observing the Jets and being so happy that Rex Ryan wasn't my coach and laughing at them for having him employed. And then um, here I am, you know, shortly after he gets canned and with the Jets, he's the next head coach of the Buffalo Bills. I tried to buy in. I did. You know, I, I tried to put my fan goggles in and, and try to like Rex Ryan. Probably lasted three, maybe four games, um, and I just couldn't do it. Um, you know, a great leader is someone that people want to follow. And there's just no way that in observing Rex Ryan that I could somehow come to grips with believing that he's a great leader of men. Um, He talks big, but his defensive philosophies were dated and they didn't work. Um, How he couldn't win with that 2016 roster is beyond me. Go back and look at the Bills depth chart in 2016 and tell me how in the crap they couldn't get to the postseason. It's because Rex Ryan's just an awful coach. And the fact that he said things like, you know, uh, the the game plan's been done for weeks against the Patriots, and he had so much confidence. Like, you have to respect your opponent. And he didn't, and he had every reason to respect the Patriots, and he just didn't, and he just looked like an ass all the time. And I was embarrassed that he was the head coach of my favorite football team. And, you know, he's saying stupid stuff about getting fully pregnant with his defense, right? He tried to, like, carry over the – um the, the Jim Schwartz principles and then like the defense sucked and he blamed it on him not fully inserting his defense and he said the word fully pregnant? What? And he did stupid things like paint his truck and he wore a Thurman Thomas jersey at the combine. Like he's just like, he's like a bad politician. He's like a bad used car salesman. And I saw right through his crap. 
um, and realize that he's a bad coach. I mean, just just an awful coach. So let's be glad that I wasn't hosting a Bills podcast back in the Rex Ryan days because I'm not sure I'm not sure we'd have a great relationship like we do right now, me and the Bills Mafia. I I, uh, I much prefer discussing Sean McDermott and what he brings to the table as the leader of a football team. Kyle says, how would you grade Brian Dable's second quarter of the season? The offense and Josh's numbers have fallen off quite a bit since the red-hot start. There have been a number of factors that have contributed, in my opinion, but Dable has been a polarizing character amongst Bills fans since he took over. I was just wondering where you stand with him. You know, it's definitely been an adjustment for the Bills offense over the last four games compared to the first four. Uh, I go back to saying that there were two games that were weird in terms of scheduling uh, with the Titans and Chiefs games. You had uh, two division games baked into that four-game sample size, Uh, one of those being on the road against a team that you already played and beat this year. And I know the Jets are terrible, but it's still hard to beat a team twice in a season. And so, you know, they're familiar. Greg Williams is a good defensive coordinator, and uh, that just creates for a tougher game. You had two games, the Chiefs and the Patriots game, that had weather conditions that certainly impacted the offensive output. So, look, I've got reasons, I've got excuses, uh, but the Bills' offense wasn't as good over the last four games as it was in the first four. And kind of what we talked about earlier is I'm looking for that next step in the evolution of this offense and how they're going to respond to the trends in terms of how defenses are now playing the Bills. And I think that'll be a big storyline to monitor in the third quarter of the season. But overall, I'd say I'm 90% satisfied uh, with Brian Dable. Eric says, my question revolves around your mock draft approach and how we can all become a little smarter when it comes to overall draft approach and knowledge. When you do a mock draft, do you go into it with a scenario in mind, a sort of scientific method approach, having changed a single variable and then running another mock? Or do you simply look at the team overall and say, How have I graded these guys and what do I think fits the system? Let me give you some examples of what I mean regarding the scientific approach variable change method. Matt Milano doesn't resign. Mach 1. Matt Milano doesn't resign. John Brown resigns. Mach 2. Milano does resign. Mach 3. Milano resigns but for a short term deal. Mach 4. Milano doesn't resign. Josh Allen resigns. John Brown is traded for a Milano replacement at the end of next season, etc., etc., with the understanding that some or all of these scenarios may be non-optimal, silly, or ridiculous. Or does this type of thinking just not apply to the mocking mindset because there are just too many variables that could throw wrenches in the approach? I recognize drafting for need or drafting for best available is a simpler mindset, but I have to imagine that analysts use this kind of scientific approach combined with the best player available style, especially in the months leading up as they have more time and more to consider, all with with less actual knowledge. Am I wrong? You'll be helping settle a debate with your input. Hopefully everyone followed the question here. Basically what I'm going to respond to here is how do I do mock drafts? And I'll say that the approach and the mindset going into writing a mock draft changes throughout the process. At this point, you know, early on in, in the discussion, I'm really just trying to find connections between what players fit what teams and where team needs may fall. And for every team, there's so many different variables. For the Bills, like we've already talked about, you know, you have question marks at cornerback, linebacker into your offensive line, offensive tackle, and it's all contingent on who the Bills re-sign and don't re-sign. So when you have so many different options, you're guessing a little bit. You know, I, I can't pick a cornerback, linebacker, offensive tackle, guard for the Bills because they don't have that many picks. So what I do is when it's time to pick for each individual team, I try to isolate my mind to only think about that team, look at the players that are available, look at the needs that the team has, and pick something that makes sense. I'm trying to present a logical scenario. Now, as we get further along in the process and we know more about what needs have been addressed and what needs have not been addressed, obviously you have a a smaller amount of needs to fill, and that reduces your options with any given pick. So 
a lot of the time it really is just about presenting logical scenarios. You gain more information as the process moves along. And then by the end of it, you're really just trying to um, actually guess what you think will happen. And so when I do my last mock draft, I am talking to every person that I can possibly speak to about players and teams, guys, you know, people that work for teams, all that type of stuff to pick up as much information as I can, figure out what I should believe and try to piece together a very accurate final mock draft. But, you know, it's a lot of just kind of working through scenarios, trying to be logical. And inevitably, you know, if you think that the Bills absolutely need to pick a cornerback in the first round and I do a mock draft and they pick an offensive tackle, you're probably going to be disappointed. You know, I know that I'm not going to make everyone happy. So I'm trying to think what is the most useful, meaningful, logical pick every single time, present a logical scenario, and then eventually try to work all the sources together I possibly can to be accurate with my predictions. If I can further clarify or you want to talk offline about this, Eric, hit me up. You've got my email. I want to make sure I settle your uh, your debate here uh, appropriately. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on this podcast. A bit of a marathon, but a lot of good stuff to get to. I hope you stuck with me to the end, and I hope you found value in listening to the podcast. Tomorrow will be our comprehensive primer on the Seattle Seahawks, a very uncommon opponent for the Bills. But I'm going to break them down for you and let you know everything you need to know about the challenges they present and what the Bills need to do to find success against a really good team here in Week 9. Don't miss it. Make sure that you are subscribed, rate, review, share the podcast, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.